Now, with over 25 years of experience integrating mental health and spirituality, the author of Reclaiming Authenticity, When Ancestors Weep, and Redeeming the Bereaved, here is Dr. James Houck. Okay, well, good afternoon, everybody, wherever you are in the world at this time. Welcome to Reclaiming Authenticity. Happy Friday, October the 15th. And Reclaiming Authenticity is all about finding your courage to reclaim that which has always been in you from the very, very beginning and then some. I am very excited to be with you here today, each and every Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, noon Pacific Standard Time. I'm Dr. James Houck, and if you would like more information about me or to leave me your comments about today's show, I invite you to visit the website. It's www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. So www.bbsradio.com backslash reclaiming authenticity. And if you would like to be part of today's show, you can certainly do that um, and give you the um, telephone number that you can call in. It's 888-627-6008. That's 888-627-6008. And you can be part of the show. And I'll be taking your calls after uh, the break. And these uh, broadcasts are now podcasted, in case you would like to go back and listen again to the show, or even if you want to go back into the archives and listen to previous shows, I invite you to do that. But these shows are now uh, also available for download on Audible and Amazon Music. So um, we are doing our best to get as many people, you know, the access to these podcasts as possible. So... Um, Again, I just invite you to visit that website and just uh, give me your feedback and um, to how these shows have touched you, how they have made a difference in your life and so forth, or if there's any particular themes um, or uh, aspects that you would like me to talk about. I'm always open to uh, suggestions. Okay. And uh, before we start the show, I just wanted to take this opportunity just to thank everybody for their support and to say that you now have an opportunity to continue that support by becoming a monthly subscriber. Now, a, being a monthly subscriber is not required to listen to the talk shows, but it is greatly appreciated. So again, all you need to do is just go to the website and click on the link uh, and choose any amount that you feel comfortable giving. Well, um, let's uh, start this broadcast just by kind of backtracking a little bit. And, and um, I always do this for the benefit of people who might be tuning in for the very first time. Just a little background on exactly what is reclaiming authenticity. And it's pretty much this. It really doesn't matter who we are or where we were born or into what family we were placed Ours is a world that is just filled with relationships. We just cannot get around that, okay, because we are social beings. And we often spend our lives trying to make sense of the world by trying to find our place in the world. 
And as social beings, it's often within the context of these relationships that we experience tremendous pain and suffering uh, from overt acts of, let's say, betrayal or uh, downright cruelty that somebody has inflicted against us or Let's be honest, you know, maybe we have inflicted it upon them. Or it could be that maybe we were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, regardless, many, many people bear the scars of physical, psychological, emotional, and spiritual woundedness at the hands of, of others. And like I said, and vice versa. And as I will be talking about in this show, um, is basically about how do we tell our stories? How do we tell these stories from uh, a, a place of woundedness or disappointment? And depending on how long we've been carrying this brokenness around, we might even tell our stories from a deeper place of bitterness. Okay. And yet, ironically, just as we experience our woundedness in relationships, it's also within the context of healthier relationships that we can find our healing, we can find our voice, we can find our authenticity. And the difficulty then is often finding the courage to discover that which has always been in you. Because once you do, you're never willing to settle for anything less. In fact, you cannot go back to the way things were. It's just, it's impossible because a transformation has occurred in you. But again, as I said, the difficulty is finding that courage to discover those things that have always been there. And the, the things that I'm talking about are those gifts and graces and skills and, and that uniqueness that we have, that we come into the world that uh, uh, Franciscan uh, Scottish uh, scholar, uh, John Dun Scotus, he coined the phrase hachetas. And it is basically thisness. We all have a thisness to us, you know, much in the same way that we all have a thumbprint. We all have a fingerprint, but no two are alike. Well, we all have a thisness and yet no two are alike because I am a firm believer that we do come into this world with everything we already have and everything we already need for ourselves and for others. But through various experiences, we have been, let's say, giving away parts of ourselves of that uniqueness or that thisness, or we downplay it, or maybe we've... Um, been hearing a message all our lives that uh, we just simply, you know, we just cannot measure up to somebody's expectations of us, or there's a standard out there that we just cannot meet, and we just try and try and try, and only to be disappointed, and we just either throw up our hands and say, I quit, that's it, enough, I can't do it, I'm no good, and whatever other just unhealthy uh, voice that is uh, telling us these things. Or maybe we've even hid that thisness from others in order to survive an abuse, or um, maybe in ways in which we weren't even aware of it, you know, these aspects of ourselves, this uniqueness has been taken away from us. And we didn't really have the strength to fight to keep those things. Well, either way, 
whenever we become aware that we've done these things, it, it, it's not a matter of shame and guilt. It's not a matter of sin. It's not a matter of blame or none of that. It, but it does take tremendous courage to reclaim those things. It takes tremendous courage to reclaim who we are. And we can reclaim our voice, our uniqueness, our thisness. And whenever this occurs, we soon discover that we begin to tell our stories of transformation from a different place in us, a place of healing, a place of wholeness, a place of gratitude. Well, uh, speaking of today's show, um, just want to start off with, you know, maybe you've read this passage in the Bible or you know, I'm sure it's 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 familiar because it's it's just very common out there in society. It's often misquoted, but it's also very quiet, and, or I'm sorry, um, just very, um, you know, very common to hear. And you know, the passage is this. You know, Jesus was it's part of his Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter seven, and Jesus says, you know, it's a teaching on you know, take the plank out of your own eye first before you remove the speck of sawdust from another person's eye. Okay? Take the plank out of your own eye first before removing the speck of sawdust from somebody else's eye. And every now and then, I, I run into this misperception out there that uh, before you can help others, you have to be free from your own pain and suffering. In other words, you first have to be healed from your own problems, or at least have your act together. Okay? But with this quote in Matthew's gospel, you know, about taking the plank out of your own eye first before you can remove the speck of sawdust from another person's eye, when it's taken out of context, you know, many people just wrongly interpret this teaching to mean that others simply have no right to say anything to us, and we have no right to say anything to them. Or maybe people should just mind their own business because, after all, Take the plank out of your own eye first before you remove the speck of sawdust from another person's eye. Okay, do you hear the misinterpretation? Well, this simply isn't the case. Okay, in fact, it, it often turns out to be just the opposite. That in the right attitude, the right energy, the correct um, spirit of, of reaching out and helping, that in spite of themselves, people find ways to reach out to serve others. They, they find ways to provide that emotional healing and support. In other words, you don't have to have your act together before you offer that understanding or that forgiveness or that love to somebody else. Okay, um, now just uh, let's take a moment here and just consider the number of people in your life who have helped you along the way. You know, people who have spoken words of comfort and grace and healed you on some level with their, their kindness. And it could have been just something as simple as just a, a small, you know, smile or holding the door for you or some other kindness that they had shown to you. Now, think of it this way. Do you think that these people seem to have their acts together or did they just do in spite of their perceived limitations? I mean, did they wait until they had their acts together before reaching out? Or did it appear that they just reached out and they comforted and they they gifted others? Well, I'm certain 
that we can make a long list of people who fit that kind of description. And that's just the people we're aware of. I mean, what about others who work behind the scenes? Well, let's take this idea one step further. You know, would you be willing to add your name to that list? I mean, do we believe that before we can comfort and reach out to others that we must make certain that our, uh, let's shall we say, the, our front porch is swept clean? Well, not necessarily. Because um, you've heard me quote this book before, The Wounded Healer, and it's uh, uh, Henry Nouwen's um, just a famous book. It's a classic book that raises this one question. In other words, do we have to wait until we are fully healed from our past, our wounds, and our shortcomings? And if the answer is no, then the next question should be, all right, what are we waiting for then? I mean, we have all the, uh, I mean, we all have the, uh, psychological, emotional, physical, even spiritual wounds and scars. And these wounds and scars refer to, you know, what we have gone through. You know, those reminders of where we have been, not to serve as excuses that we can make to justify our anger or our bitterness or prejudices, but rather, you know, our woundedness can often serve as a means to awaken compassion and empathy in us towards one another. Now, despite living in the 21st century, there are still huge pockets of people, of populations, who are still considered by society as people who are untouchable, unreachable, and unlovable. But who makes these rules? I mean, who sets these boundaries? I mean, where are these, you know, uh, lines that are drawn, this partition, as you were? You know, the lines may be drawn on a map to mark the boundaries, or maybe they are just left uh, unmarked on a map. But come on, we all know where the real boundaries lie. But lines may be drawn on a map to mark the boundaries, but who then draws those same lines on our hearts? Okay. Now, again, there are people considered by society as untouchable, unreachable, unlovable. They could be our neighbors. They could live in another county. They, they could live in another state. But again, according to whose standards? Is somebody untouchable or unreachable or unlovable? And again, who makes these rules? Well, I'm going to throw out this one caution, okay, in all this at the very beginning that, you know, we have to be careful that in reaching out to others, we simply, you know, don't act out of our own woundedness. Otherwise, we're going to make it about ourselves. You know, it's something that, you know, what can I get out of it? instead of focusing on fulfilling the needs in another person, okay? So, no, we, we don't have to wait until we have our acts together before reaching out to others. You know, there is a fascinating story out there. I mean, this is years and years ago. I had read it, and I, I just loved it because it just drove that point home. And it was a research study that involved people who had cancer who believed in the power of prayer. 
Okay. And uh, there was a group of 50 people who were struggling with some form of cancer. Um, and like I said, they also believed in prayer. But these you know, people were separated into two groups of 25. And for the next 30 days, you know, 25 of them were told just to pray for themselves. Don't pray for anybody else. You can use any kind of method or form or ritual or whatever of prayer, but just pray for yourself. And then the other 25 were told, you know, to pray for the other 25 people, you know, unbeknownst to them. And again, it didn't matter on the mode of prayer or ritual or, or whatever, you know, uh, the prayer looked like or sounded like, but they weren't allowed to pray for themselves. But instead, they prayed for this other 25, you know, people in that other group without letting them know what they were doing. So after 30 days, they, you know, interviewed both groups separately, and uh, they discovered that uh, the people who prayed for themselves didn't find any changes in their outlook on life. In fact, you know, some were even more miserable than before. Uh, but for the group who spent their time praying for others, they had this, you know, they had a more positive outlook on life. They felt better, although they still had their cancer. You know, they felt better and they admitted to being more peaceful and happier. And the implications for the study on intercessory prayer were multiple, including the fact that people can pray for one another and reach out in compassion and provide comfort to others. Or in other words, we all have giftedness and we all have skills that are not meant for ourselves. And we, I mean, how many times do we often underestimate ourselves? But when we truly see ourselves as perhaps being an answer to another person's prayers, everything we do then is so that the people will live. And not just live, but live in peace, live in wholeness, live in hope. Well, recently, um, Yom Kippur was uh, celebrated back in September. It's a time of starting over a clean slate, uh, a newness. But when we think about it, what does it mean to walk in this newness? I mean, many people want to live their lives of purpose and meaning, but fear not knowing how to do this. Or they're so embroiled in the belief that much of life has been beaten, you know, beaten into them and they feel beaten down that they often struggle to find a reason to care, let alone give me a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Well, if you recall the Broadway musical Les Miserables, it was uh, one of uh, actually one of the main characters, Fantine who sings this sentiment. I had a dream my life would be so different from the hell I'm living, so different now from what it seemed. Now life has killed the dream in me. And this was, you know, I would say probably the red thread that just ran through the entire, you know, Broadway musical. And finding hope in life has to be one of the major themes that come up in counseling therapy over and over and over again. 
Because I often sit with others who struggle to heal from their past and in their own way and time work through very painful memories. More than just feeling stagnant or I'm stuck in life, you know, people also wrestle with a sense of hopelessness or a feeling that life is meaningless. And, and you know, it's like, well, this happened to me. And like, now what do I do? But the truth is, we're not alone in this life. We all come from a long line of ancestors who are cheering us on. And we have different ways to describe it, you know, in, in you know, several church circles, you know, it, uh, it's often promoted that we have, uh, that we're often surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, okay, who are just cheering us on and looking on and, and so forth and, and providing us with encouragement and hope. And even in um, uh, the Catholic Church, they, they talk about the communion of the saints, you know, people who have gone on before us and so forth. And, you know, in Native American circles, they talk about connection to their ancestors as well as in um, uh, other religions. You know, they just, there's that connectedness that we all have that, you know, it, it's, it's there. And I, I call that connection that's more like a blood-soul connection. Okay. And uh, it all points to the fact that we're not alone in this life. Uh, you know, and we have many, many more ancestors who will come after us. Okay. Again, I mean, think about the people who didn't wait till they had their lives healed and sorted out and their acts together. Uh, you know, but in, in spite of all that, they reached out and they healed others regardless. Because also someday future generations, you know, will be reminded of us and how we lived our lives and the struggle to remain faithful to that which we've been called or to, you know, in a sense, be a good steward with what we've been entrusted with. But for all of this and more, do we ever stop to consider the kind of impact our lives have and will have for generations to come? And again, this was a lesson that my teacher taught me just by looking at the, my you know, I, I cut my finger on his chair and the blood trickled down and he said, they're all in there. And that powerful lesson of once you can see those who have come before you, you will also be able to see those who will come after you, those who are alive, but are yet to be born. You're all there in that single drop of blood. Well, in creating a living dialogue with one's ancestors, we have to remember that our soul connection with them is not about finding blame, you know, or placing a fault for the wounds suffered from intergenerational trauma. You know, it's not about like, okay, well, who can I point my finger to and say, ah, okay, if it wasn't for that person, none of this would have started. It's, it's not about that. Instead, it's a living dialogue intended to create an ongoing opportunity for healing and reconciliation, as well as stopping the, the harmful psychological, emotional, and spiritual patterns from being passed on to generations that have yet to be born. And many times this requires us to think and rethink beyond a linear approach to our families. 
because I often, you know, in working with many, many people that, you know, and they, they get this concept of this living dialogue with those who have, you know, gone on before us and those who are going to come after us, you know, and, and, you know, the work that they're doing, uh, you know, at present, you know, I refer to them as, you know, you are the transitional generation then for your family. And it does require us to stand in the gap, as it were, and offer release, not just for ourselves, but also for all family members, regardless of whether or not they were perpetrators or they were victims. You know, for example, I have friends who uh, set their intention to heal intergenerational trauma from the perspective of the unborn generations. Uh, and this, you know, it's it just fascinating what they do. And it's much like going back seven generations to heal souls that are stuck due to trauma. But they place themselves in the role, or I should say, the voice of seven generations in the future. Okay, so let's uh, just say, just for the sake of argument here, that uh, an example of, of a person who was born somewhere around 1980, and the, uh, the healing or the effect of healing intergenerational trauma or not would then impact generations up to, you know, the seventh generation or the year 2145. Okay, that's how long seven generations is for somebody born in 1980. And from this perspective, the, the need of healing intergenerational trauma now is crucial if the next seven generations are to be empowered to begin their life on earth free from traumatic baggage and this needless family suffering. Okay, so let's, let's look at it this way. Uh, the first generation, okay, the person born in 1980, let's say they are the parent. And the second generation, let's say they're born somewhere around 2005. And I'm using the, um, the standard of, you know, every 25-ish, between 25 and 35-ish years, maybe 40 years, a new generation comes along. But it's, it's more like every 25 years. Okay, so that's where I'm getting these numbers from. So the person is born in 1980 and their children are born in 2005. But then their grandchildren, the third generation, is born in 2045. And then the great-grandchildren will be born in 2070. And then the great-great-grandchildren will be born in 2095. And it just goes on, and, and then this, up to the seventh generation, it would be in the year 2145. And as I said, these are people who have yet to be born, but when we consider intergenerational trauma, they're also going to be the ones who are going to be affected by what's done or not, what's healed or not today. And still, there are many, many people ask me, okay, how do you heal intergenerational trauma when you don't even know your present family? let alone connect with the ancestors and those who have yet to be born. You know, there's just no involvement. There's no, I, I just don't feel connected. I don't even know my family. Well, the answer is that, you know, many religious and social ceremonies and rituals bring us back into a spiritual, psychological, emotional, and physical alignment or awareness with God, ourselves, 
and our relations. No matter what nationality or race or ethnicity or region we are from, every culture has their own unique celebrations. Every culture has their own ceremonies and rituals to connect people to those who have come before them, those whom they live and move and interact with at present, as well as those who have yet to be born. Because many ceremonies mark transitions in our lives, such as graduations or weddings and, and even funerals. Others may be more seasonal and they follow a yearly observance, you know, such as birthdays or anniversaries or holidays or solstice celebrations, etc. Well, regardless of when a particular ceremony is observed or whether or not people are connected to their community, there's always this universal teaching that's often hidden in the rituals themselves that can be applied to all of humanity. For instance, uh, Mel Madrona in 2010 states this, the purpose then of religion should be to help us maintain a binding commitment to spiritual awareness within the lives of our communities. And this is done through the power of ritual, which is the materialization of religion, the bearer of religious tradition, the ensurer of continuity of the life of the present with the original spirit of the past. Then the reenactment of traditional ritual in worship by providing, you know, through religion, ensures that the past, that is our ancestors, continue to touch our bodies, our flesh, and to reach into our hearts and our souls. Well, I would really love to hear your heart and soul on this matter. So again, if you would like to call in, I invite you to do so. That number is 888-627-6008. And I'll be taking your calls after the break. Again, you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. And I'm your host, Dr. James Houck. And I'll be back with you in one minute.
Okay, welcome back. I am Dr. James Hauk, and you are listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. Again, I just want to share a word with you about next week's show. That's going to be on Friday, October 22nd. Yes, we're moving closer to Halloween. So um, on that particular show, I'm going to be talking about the different levels of pain. Okay, and namely the somatic pain, the visceral pain, and the neuropathic uh, pain. And um, this is something that... um, I always listen for, and I wonder why different types of pain are not addressed whenever we're, we're talking about, let's say, the opioid pandemic in, in America, that, you know, what opioids do for people, you know, is it to, you know, uh, reach them on a somatic level, you know, to just take care of the, the physical pain? Or is it some, you know, a little bit lower or deeper, I should say, the visceral pain? And what about neuropathic pain? And and talking uh, to my uh, wife, and we have these discussions many times, and she says, you know, there's also a phenomenon called total pain, which captures more of a multifactual pain and suffering that people experience. And so... Interesting, we're not just going to talk about, you know, these different levels of pain, but also to understand not only, again, these levels of pain, but also exactly where the grace of God can touch a person. Because just as there's, you know, multifaceted um, aspects to understanding pain in a person's life, there's, I'm sure, a multifaceted healing that can also take place. So tune in next Friday at uh, noon Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Well, earlier in the show, uh, I was talking about creating a living dialogue with our ancestors, you know, and not just those who have come before us, but for those who will also come after us. I mean, can we see everybody whom we're connected to? You know, and just like, you know, my teacher, you know, had said to me many years ago, he said, do you see all the generations of those who come before you in whose blood, that is your blood, carries the DNA of their lives and yours? And more than just every characteristic of genes that we have, but can you also see their personalities, their character strengths, their flaws, their struggles? Can you see their fears? Can you see their triumphs and joys? And can you see their mistakes? Can you see their souls when they took their very first breath? Can you see them before what we call time? You know, that instant when the creator dreamt them and even you. And once you can see those who have come before you, you will also be able to see those who come after you, those who are alive but yet to be born because you're all there in that single drop of blood. And right before the break, I did ask that one question, or I should say I shared a question that has been asked of me um, since I do a lot of intergenerational uh, trauma healing. And it's simply, how do we heal from intergenerational trauma when you don't even know your present family, let alone how do you then connect with your ancestors and, and, and even further, how then do we connect with those who have yet to be born? And as I share, the the answer can often be found in the ceremonies and rituals, whether they be religious or social, and, and how those ceremonies and rituals 
bring us back into a spiritual, psychological, emotional, and a physical alignment, or more importantly, an awareness, awareness of ourselves and with others and with God. And no matter what nationality or race or ethnicity or region we were from, every culture has their own unique way of doing this. They have their own unique rituals and celebrations. And for example, um, every August, I believe it's on every August 10th, the village of Picaris Pueblo in New Mexico holds their harvest festival. And it is, it is just very spectacular. You know, during the celebration, there are endless ceremonies commemorating the connection that people have with God, who is the creator and sustainer of life, and their connection to the abundance from the land and the love of their community. And there are religious services, there's foot races, there's indigenous drumming and singing and dances, and of course, sharing meals together. Well, the first time I uh, attended this celebration, I was struck by the large, probably 25 to 30 foot wooden pole that was erected in the middle of the town. And on top of this pole were tied three things, a sheep, a blanket, and a watermelon, or should I say, you know, the sheep's um, wool. Okay. Uh, now, the elders explained to me that these items symbolize God's provision of food and clothing and connection to the land. I mean, they just didn't put them up there, fasten them up there just for the sake of, let's put something on top of a pole. No, they, they you know, again, ceremony, symbolism, powerful things. And so it symbolized this, you know, connection to God's, you know, provision, you know, the food, the clothing, and the land. And the culmination of this festival involved retrieval of these items by dancer clowns dressed in black and white. Now, uh, apart from reminding the people of the importance of laughter and play as they worked their way through the crowds, it was the main responsibility of these clowns to climb the pole and recover these items. Now, okay, in good comic fashion, the clowns would make several valiant efforts to climb the pole, you know, such as swinging from ropes and try standing on each other's shoulders and then they would slide down. And, and of course, this was much to the amusement and the encouragement of the crowd below. And finally, after several attempts, one clown would reach the top. And of course, cheers erupted from the, uh, from the crowd below. And one by one, you know, these items would be lowered and then received with joy from the community. And as I sat there watching this ceremony, this ritual, I was reminded of the teaching that surrounded this ceremony, that unless the clowns retrieve these items each year, the people would die. Now, Initially, I, I thought this teaching was strange. I mean, after all, uh, you know, the community couldn't live off exclusively a watermelon, a sheep, and a blanket, okay? Uh, but then, it, you know, the, the, the meaning of the ceremony finally hit me. I mean, failure to retrieve these items was not meant to be taken literally. It wasn't meant to be taken as a literal death. But rather, it is what dies within the people as they live, is what matters the most. 
what dies within people as they live is what matters the most. Now, apart from food and clothing and shelter, the real issues that we cannot afford to live without are hope, love, gratitude, inner peace, and grace, just to name a few. I mean, these virtues are the true life-giving gifts that nourish and sustain the soul that far exceeds any kind of material possession. And because ceremonies and rituals contain deeper levels of meaning, succeeding generations need to learn the, the uh, relevance that these ceremonies have for them to live in their soul consciousness. And by doing so, nothing is taken for granted in this life. Not one breath, not one sip of water, nor the opportunity to bring healing from trauma in another person's life. Because everything and everyone are connected. Well, these days, obtaining um, any kind of ancestral information is, is made much, much easier with the assistance of online searches, okay? It's going to cost you some money, you know, to kind of get in there and sign up and so forth. But, you know, you just kind of pop in a name and boom, there you go. Uh, you know, and, and, and in working with the intergenerational trauma and ancestral healing, I often, you know, encourage people to work with three to four generations to start, you know, go back and just kind of trace the family line just with those three to four generations. Now, ideally, you know, we eventually want to go back at least seven generations, you know, it, because that creates a more thorough context for healing to occur because it's based on the seventh generational principle which originated from the Native American Iroquois nation. And this principle taught that every decision, albeit individual or societal, has to consider the impact on the seventh generation. I'm just going to read a, just a, a little portion of this. And it says, The thickness of your skin shall be seven spans, which is to say that you shall be proof against anger, offensive actions, and criticism. Your heart shall be filled with peace and goodwill, and your mind filled with a yearning for the welfare of the people. With endless patience, you shall carry out your duty, and your firmness shall be tempered with tenderness for your people. Neither anger nor fury shall find lodging in your mind, and all your words and actions shall be marked with calm deliberations." And in all your deliberations, in your efforts at lawmaking, in all your official acts and self-interest shall be cast into oblivion. But cast not over your shoulder behind you the warnings of the nephews and nieces, should they chide you from any error or wrong you may do, but return to the way of the great law, which is just and right." Look and listen for the welfare of the whole people, and have always in view not only the present, but also the coming generations, even those whose faces are yet beneath the surface of the ground, the unborn of the future nation. Now, although the, the principle here emphasizes the effect that present 
decisions have on up to seven generations into the future. I also believe it, it provides us with a social context to be able to heal seven generations before us whose decisions are affecting us today. Okay, so let's return to the timetable here. Okay, let's uh, say that every new generation begins approximately between 25 to 30 years. Okay, and uh, this means that the seventh generation of our ancestors would have begun approximately 175 to around 210 years ago. Okay, so therefore, let's say if a person, again, was born in 1980, his or her ancestral context map would, would look like this. It'll sound like this, okay? So, uh, again, we're dealing with somebody who was born in 1980. So their parents, okay, now we're going backwards here. Their parents would have been born somewhere in 1955, 1950, somewhere there, okay? And then that person's um, grandparents would have been born somewhere between 1920 and 1930, and then their great-grandparents would be born somewhere around 1905 to 1890. And then the great-great-grandparents would be 1880, 1860, okay, Civil War time and, and a little bit afterwards, okay? And you keep going back 25, 30 years. In the seventh generation, that person would have been born somewhere between 1805 and 1770, so again, we're going back to Revolutionary War times in, in America, that is. So during Revolutionary War times and a little bit afterwards, okay, would have been, you know, that seventh generation that have been born, okay? And so it's interesting that, let's say, the decisions that that seventh generation ancestor has made or the generations have made has that effect to somebody born in 1980, Okay, because whatever was put into motion might have been passed down, handed down in a certain way, and then every just like I said, every decision, every behavior, everything, you know, has that potential to be felt up to seventh generations. So that that seventh generation would be the person born in nineteen eighty, if their seventh generation ancestor was born seventeen seventy to eighteen oh five. Okay, it does get a little tricky, but you know, once you do the math, it's just interesting to consider the times in which people have lived and the technology. And you know, sometimes that you know, people had to do what they had to do and they had to make decisions that they weren't proud of. And you know, there, there may be people you know in our family line who were like, wow, that's great, you know, I got a famous person. And, or it could be somebody in our family line who might have caused a lot of pain and turmoil back in the day, okay? Well, one of the things I've learned is that any kind of soul healing and soul release is not just the work of a select few, but everybody, all people, have the potential to heal their own ancestral relationships, and I meet so many people who want to stop the cycle of intergenerational trauma, but they're just at a loss as to, you know, what, what can I do? And rightly so. And nevertheless, the best place to begin the journey, you know, toward healing is to first examine their own symptoms and situations in life or the problems that they might struggle with time and time again that they just can't get a handle on. 
Okay. And for me, what began on a mass scale of releasing land and the souls held by the energy of intergenerational trauma at Montauk, Long Island, was also achieved on an individual basis in working with my own family of origin. Okay. In my life, it was a, a struggle with anxiety, but it probed much deeper. I became aware of my unconscious fear of being trapped and suffocating. And uh, for months, you know, once I kind of honed in on that and, and discovered more and more of, you know, on my father's side, the, you know, the ancestors and where I came from and so forth, for months I knew I had to return to an abandoned mine where over 40 coal miners were killed in a horrific gas explosion. And this was also the place where my grandfather had died from a falling rock as, as he was mining some 12 years later, you know, after that explosion. And at the time, my father was two years old. And as a result of that tragedy, my father grew up without his father. Well, as I drove out to where the mouth of this now dem, you know, demolished mine entrance out in the western part of Pennsylvania, I had uh, taken some very specific items with me. I had taken my Native American drum and, and I, I drummed quietly and I offered tobacco prayers for these men and their families and surrounding towns because... If you live in a small coal mining town and you hear that whistle being blown that there is a, a cave-in or some other kind of tragedy, the whole town comes out to help. And as I was just sitting there and just taking it all in, I, I felt the traumatic pain and the heaviness that the land held as well as the emotional burdens, you know, the generations of families from other coal mine accidents carried for so long. And ironically, although I was seeking healing for myself, although I went out there to find some kind of peace, little did I realize that there was going to be healing for many, many others. So I sat there and I just quietly prayed. You know, I asked for forgiveness. I asked, you know, to be forgiven from the bitterness and any other negative emotion I harbored in my soul against my grandfather and my father, okay? Because in that moment, I realized that perhaps my father was just simply incapable of meeting my emotional needs as a parent because his father just simply wasn't there to meet his emotional needs, I mean, his father's death may have also contributed significantly to my own father being a very quiet man. He was very reserved, but yet he was also a very anxious man. In fact, all of his life, my father struggled with the attitude that, well, you know, there's always, there's always something or there always is something that could go wrong. And he could never put his finger on it, but he always felt this kind of like a, a, a free-floating anxiety of impending doom. He never got his hopes up because, well, what if something happens? And in light of the coal mine accident, now it made sense. And I also had to ask for forgiveness for the negativity and the bitterness I was holding on to regarding the effect of this trauma had on the family, as well as the fact that Nobody talked to me about this trauma as a child. I 
I didn't even know this story existed until I went, you know, doing my own research. And it's like, oh, it's not interesting. And perhaps, you know, the, the people were just too overwhelmed to put into words, you know, the memories of that day because they were stuck in their own trauma. Who knows? Well, furthermore, I also thanked my grandfather for his hard work and his sacrifice. You know, maybe he didn't have a choice but to work in the mine. I mean, after all, coal mining was the mainstay of communities, you know, in the western part of the state. And perhaps his mother and his father struggled with their own emotional pain knowing that their son was going to work in the same mine that 14 years earlier was the site of this <laughs> explosion that killed 40 men. Well, nevertheless, I thanked him for his dedication, especially when his body ached and the times that he didn't feel like going to work. I thanked him from come, you know, coming home each night to his family and scrubbing up before dinner and watching the cold dirt being rinsed from his hands and his body. I thanked him for what he did day in and day out because people like him and others, you know, working in the mines provided and sustained, you know, the economy and the economic energy at the time. And then finally, I said that I loved him, even though I never met him and I was honored to be his grandson. Although not a coal miner myself, you know, I could sense the, the metaphorical coal dust in my veins. You know, and I, I laughed to myself as I remember the times as a boy, I would always dig in the dirt, you know, and I would come home, but, you know, <clears throat> as soon as I got in the door, I was ordered by my mother to take a bath before dinner. Don't tramp, you know, muddy shoes all through my house and so forth. Well, when I finished drumming and praying, I just had this incredible vision. You know, I, I saw my grandfather come up out of the mouth of the mind. You know, and he was dressed in his work clothes and his helmet, and he was covered in soot, and he was holding his lunch pail, you know, dressed as a coal miner back in like the 1920s or so. And uh, as I caught a glimpse of him, he immediately was then taken up into heaven. And I just like, wow, where did that come from? But no sooner had I said that than, to my surprise, other coal miners followed one by one, those who had died in other mines were being released as well. You know, they just they just climbed right out, you know, right in front of me. They climbed up, you know, they brushed off their excess soot from their bodies, and then they were whisked away to heaven. And to me, it, I mean, that just went on for a long time. It seems like hundreds and hundreds of souls, perhaps from other coal mining accidents, came up out of this, what I would call a portal. And my soul just swelled with joy as I sat there quietly watching these men being transported to heaven. And sometimes I would just resume drumming softly, and, and uh, other times I just sat there quietly and just smiled and just, just felt so grateful to be given this gift to be able to see this healing. And when, uh, you know, once the last coal miner was transported to heaven, I sensed wave after wave of an incredible peace wash over me. And it was just a life-changing vision that I had. 
And so I'll leave you with this. You know, it's, it's true that life can be filled with many tragedies and it can go back generations upon generations, you know, and our family lines could be, you know, filled with tragedies and heartbreak and pain. But there are also times of celebration and joy. So never let life kill the dream in you. Because it's true. It is what dies within the people as they live. I'm Dr. James Houck, and you have been listening to Reclaiming Authenticity. I invite you to tune in next week when we take a look at the different types of pain as well as the different types of healing. But until then, everybody take care, be safe, behave yourselves, and God bless. Bye-bye. For an answer, or just to leave a thousand comments, or prodding to buy a book by Dr. Hauk, it's all there. Just wander on over to ReclaimingAuthenticity.com and click around. And we'll see you next Friday at noon Pacific Time on PBS Radio TV.